0: So in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, um, April 29th, I believe two Sundays from now, we're going to begin a journey through the life of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50. Um, and, but before we get to that, um, I want to preach a couple of sermons on some other people that experienced significant trouble in their lives, namely the prophet Elijah and the prophet Jeremiah the sermon series on joseph i'm entitling the maker in the mess that god is at work in the midst of our messes trials troubles difficulties for his glory and our good job chapter 5 verse 7 job reminds us that man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward job 14:1 says man who is born of woman Is few of days and full of trouble. I wonder if you would say that that's characteristic of your life. If you experienced any trouble, if you experienced any trials, any difficulties, any challenges, any setbacks, any hard days. The Bible doesn't shy away from those sorts of things, and I'm immensely grateful it doesn't. The Bible doesn't paint a rosy picture of life, it doesn't paint nearly the Christian life that many. So-called Christians would claim is the Christian life, one of ease and no difficulty and abundant prosperity and blessing. Rather, the Bible is realistic in its portrait of life in a fallen world, even for us as the redeemed children of God. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, you remember Paul saying to the church and the Christians often that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. That this life will be marked by tribulation, difficulty, trial. And Paul says in that same verse that he went about strengthening and encouraging the souls of the disciples to continue on because he knew that there are many challenges that meet us along the way. We even have the words of our Savior Jesus in John 16, verse 33, where he reminds us that in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So our Savior, the Apostle Paul, the prophets, the Bible itself is full of trouble and full of God meeting us in the midst of our trouble. So this morning, we are going to look at one of God's children, the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19, and his trouble and what we can learn ourselves for how to face our day of trouble from how God comforts him and works in his life in the midst of his. The title of my sermon this morning is when you ask God to take your life. Sometimes our troubles can be so severe, so challenging among the most godly in the world that they ask God if they would go ahead and bring him home. And that's what we see In Elijah's life, we see him make that very request in 1 Kings chapter 19, where you are, and in verse 4, he says, He asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. How did he get there? How did he get there? How does a prophet who's just come out of doing amazing, glorious, powerful things, find himself in such a terrible situation, in a such a funk, such a soul, time of soul and personal discouragement. Three points this morning I want us to walk through. Number one, Elijah's amazing victory. Let's think about some of the things that Larry just reminded us of about Elijah's history here. We're not going to read all of First Kings 17 and 18, which lead up to our passage this morning. But I want to give you a brief reminder of what happened in those chapters. At the beginning of chapter 17, Elijah boldly goes to King Ahab, one of the most wicked and powerful kings the world had ever known, and tells him to his face that there will be no rain in Israel as a punishment for his idolatry. This is a brave prophet. And according to James 5.17, we, we read that for the next three years the heavens were shut up in accordance with Elijah's prayer. In fact, we use that verse a lot when we, to encourage ourselves in the midst of prayer. The prayer of a righteous man is faithful and accomplishes much, and that's what we see in Elijah, that his prayer was indeed answered. And then in, after that account, in obedience to God's command, he goes to live in the Cherif ravine where he is fed every day under God's sovereignty by ravens. And when the brook dries up, he goes to Zarephath, and trusts God there for daily bread, and God continues to provide for him. This is a man who knows what it has already meant to trust God in the midst of fearful, dangerous, hard circumstances, not knowing whether he's going to die, not knowing whether he's going to be fed, not knowing where he's going to live, and God has provided for him over and over and over again. In the latter half of chapter 17, Elijah raised up the young son of the widow who died. The boy being saved, witnessing God's resurrection power at work in response to his own prayer. And then he goes to the Super Bowl in at chapter 18. He goes up to Mount Carmel for the showdown. It's the biggest MMA fight you'll ever see on Mount Carmel. The showdown between Elijah in one corner... And in the other corner, the prophets of Baal. And each side prepares its bull for the sacrifice and prays to their representative gods. And whichever one answers by sending fire from heaven is the true God of Israel. It's the great contest. And Elijah gives the prophets the home bull advantage and allows them to go first. And they pray all day, come on, Baal, light my fire. And nothing happens. Elijah, of course, calls upon water to be dumped on the altar, making the chance of it catching fire even more challenging, if not impossible. And he prays to the one true and living God, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes everything. Bull, altar, water, all of it. Gone, consumed, licked up to the last drop. Then the people of Israel fall down and worship, and Elijah takes the false prophets to the nearest river and puts them all to death. Then, Elijah runs 20 miles ahead of King Ahab all the way to his palace in Jezreel and arrives before a horse and chariot does. He's flying. I mean, Elijah's a rock star. Isn't he? God's provision for you in the wilderness, being fed by ravens, daily bread supplied, seeing the resurrection of a young son of a widow, confronting King Ahab, staring down the prophets of Baal. I mean, he was a rock star on that day. He had just faced off and showed up 450 false prophets. His ministry had been vindicated, his enemies had been defeated, his prayers had been answered, and he had seen an entire nation turn their hearts back to God, at least in the moment. Time to celebrate, or maybe not. Point number two, Elijah's debilitating struggle. When we meet up with Elijah again, having just come off, biggest victory of his life, throwing the, throwing the big party. I mean, it's time to enjoy this victory for a couple of days, but that's not what we see after this great contest is over. When we meet up with Elijah again, we find him burned out, depressed, and suicidal. It is not well with his soul. He is sitting alone underneath a tree saying, that's it, God, I'm done. I've had enough you want my life, take it, because I don't want to go on living like this one more day. What happened? What happened? Well, we, we know what happened. We, if you're paying attention as we were reading the beginning of chapter 19, we see what happens. When Ahab's chariot arrives back to, to his palace in Jezreel, we get... some knowledge of something going on. Look at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger up to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Jezebel is not going to have this go on any longer. And she says, that she's going to have Elijah put to death. And in that moment, all of Elijah's courage leaves him in that moment as this sudden prospect of his impending doom at the hands of Jezebel shakes him to the core. So he runs 90 miles back to Beersheba and then went into the desert, which is another day trip, and fell down under a lonely tree, exhausted and prayed that instead of Jezebel killing him, God would. Did you know that the request to be killed by God is not an uncommon request for God's most holy servants? It's not an uncommon request in the, in the Old Testament. Moses, Numbers eleven fifteen, 15, said, If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, then may I not see my wretchedness. Now, Before we get into some of the causes of Elijah's struggle and why he entered into this deep depression, I want you to notice something, and perhaps perhaps you can't identify with this. Perhaps God has given you a resilient, largely cheerful disposition, and praise God for that. If God has made you resilient and strong in the face of adversity, to where you go through life facing your challenges and are basically able to Fight them down and overcome them by... Praise God for that. It's the grace of God at work in your life. But you need to know that there are many people around you who suffer in silent anguish. Many of your brothers and sisters in this church suffer on a weekly basis with great trouble and heartache. And just because you trust Jesus and walk with Him does not mean all your troubles go away. Many of God's most faithful fight ongoing discouragement and depression, and I don't claim to be among God's most faithful, but I am among those who get scared, think of abandoning my calling, quit, run away, and go find a lonely tree where I beg God to take me home. I've been there. Having said that, let's look at some of the contributing factors to Elijah's depression what 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 are some things that are contributing to his struggles here well i got 5 of them okay 5 of them number 1 and this is this is good counsel for all of us to remember that when we find ourselves in deeply discouraging situations when we find ourselves in the midst of trouble We need to look and see if these things are factors that might be contributing to the heightening and intensifying of that trouble. Because if we address a lot of these things, many of the the, the weight and the power of that trouble can be alleviated. Number one is exhaustion. Exhaustion. Think of how exhausted Elijah is at this moment. I mean, he was fatigued. He already ran 18 miles and then 90 more to Beersheba. And by the time he reached Mount Horeb, he had run 300 miles in all. All tired, worn out, struggling. I mean, because he's fatigued, he's tired, he's worn down. And when we are fatigued and tired and worn down, we are vulnerable to discouragement, depression, difficulty, right? Right? I once heard an acronym, and some of these will show up a little bit in even these five things that we talk about, but I once heard an acronym that that when you're facing temptation, trial, difficulty, look at at these aspects of your life and see if they're there, there. and the acronym is HALT, H-A-L-T, you want to stop for a second, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, Those things all contribute to depression, discouragement. And when we're in the face of trouble, the last thing we need is not eating and not sleeping well and not having sufficient fellowship and all those sorts of things. So Elijah's exhausted, and that's why that in order to fight fatigue, God calls him to take a nap. Go to sleep, man. Sleep. Go to sleep. And this is why it's important for us to have rhythms of rest in our own life, right? Some of you are very, very driven, and, and you need to recognize that if you don't slow down sooner or later, you will probably burn out. And so we need to incorporate rhythms of rest. My current ones, which I don't necessarily lay down as a law for anyone, it's, it's more to help me, is try to do four hours a day, where you can disengage from your normal labors and give yourself to rest, and not, not, not counting sleeping, okay? Sleeping's obviously big. A day off a week, which is why the Lord gave us, said six days you shall labor and one you shall rest. I mean, that's built in. That's a sign to us that we are to do that and then try to take a, a couple days off in a monthly span and maybe a week off in a quarterly span just some sort of rhythm where you're ensuring that you're getting the sorts of rest that you need. So exhaustion is the first one. Two. Here's a second contributing factor. Isolation. Isolation. Have you thought about this? If you know the life of Elijah up to this point, he has basically been alone for about three years straight. Then he leaves his servant according to verse 3. You notice this, verse 3, chapter 19, verse 3. Then he was afraid when, uh, when Jezebel threatened to kill him. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So now he doesn't even have a servant. But he's been virtually alone, except for having a servant with him from time to time. No, lo- no one can hang on very long without the encouragement of the people of God. And that's why Pastor Thad preached what he preached last week, is reminding us again that we need one another, that we must not allow ourselves to get into an isolated state where we're not receiving encouragement from other brothers and sisters. Number three, opposition. You have exhaustion, isolation. Third, opposition. You know, conflict just wears you out eventually. It just beats you down. I mean... Elijah has been in nothing but incessant conflict for the glory of God for a long time. And when you reach the pinnacle, like he did at Mount Carmel, you might think, time to celebrate. And he's like, nope, time to die. Because it's just, he was already, even as he's going in to the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, he probably was already 90% tired to begin with. He wasn't walking in there as the all-American football player who'd never had an uh, injury before. He's walking into the game as the 14-year veteran who's pretty broken down and wondering if he's going to make it out of the game alive. So conflict just wears you out eventually. Elijah had stood all alone against the prophets of Baal. He overcame them, and then immediately he meets Jezebel, which is, I think, a little bit of a smaller conflict. Than the prophets of Baal, wouldn't you say? 450 versus the wife of a king. But after you engage in so many battles, it doesn't take much to just send you over the edge. Many of God's most faithful do quit because, because of, not, or I should say, many of God's most faithful don't quit and just say, I'm done. Because of some catastrophic moral failure, it's just death by a thousand bee stings and paper cuts. Exhaustion, isolation, opposition, number three, emotion. Sometimes, I don't know if you've experienced this, but experiencing the highest of highs is often followed by experiencing the lowest of lows. You ever been there? Ever had a really, really great day followed by a really, really crummy day? Had those, had that happen? Surely we've lived long enough, right, that that happens to us from time to time. So emotion is a factor. Just coming off this great high and right down into the valley of discouragement. This is why counselors will tell pastors and other leaders never to resign on a Monday. Right? Don't resign on a Monday. Don't do that. Because you've just normally, because statistically, do you know that's the day that most pastors resign? It's true, because you come off a high, you go right into a low. So we've got exhaustion, isolation, opposition, emotion, five, expectations. Expectations. We sometimes can think that when we are used or we see God at work in our lives in some sort of mighty way, that this is a sign that things will get easier. And we set ourselves up with expectations of the Christian life and what it means to follow Jesus that's entirely biblically unrealistic. We think we deserve a break. I mean, surely this was something of what David was encountering with his fall with Bathsheba. I mean, military leader, king, it's high pressure. You know, i got to find a way to get some stress out. Hey, that girl down there, she'd be nice. So expectations, again, contribute to discouragement, which can contribute to all sorts of sin. The news from Jezebel was like just cold water in Elisha's face, not in a good way, but in a really alarming way. He thought, okay, I've just seen the prophets of Baal defeated. They're killed. Israel's turned to God in repentance. Okay, good days are ahead. And then he gets... A word from Jezebel, not done yet. Not yet. So he probably had built within his head some expectations that he was going to get a little bit of a Sabbath. He's going to have a little sabbatical, get a, enjoy a little vacation. Not the case. So exhaustion, isolation, opposition, emotion, and expectations can all play into Elijah's debilitating struggle, and I think they were all factors and contributing to his discouragement. So when you find yourself in trouble, look at these areas. Are you exhausted? Are you isolated? Are you opposed? Are you dealing with crazy haywire emotions? And are your expectations biblically calibrated? Assessing those areas, I think, will help us in the midst of our troubles. So those are the first two points, and then we'll spend the rest of the time on the last one, all right? It's all good news from here on out, for the most part, okay? For the most part. All right, so we get, we've get, we looked at Elijah's amazing victory and then Elijah's debilitating struggle. Now let's spend the rest of our time, number three, looking at Elijah's gracious God, Elijah's gracious God. First of all, I want you to appreciate the reality that, that God did not abandon Elijah and he won't abandon you. If you're his, no matter what trials you face, the Lord will not abandon you. Notice how God cares for his servant here, especially in verses five through eight. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Notice what God did for him. He gave him rest. Psalm 127, verse 2, God gives to his beloved sleep. That's a great sweet gift from God to us. Every day, he gives us the gift of being unconscious for a third of our lives, for a third of our day, so that we will learn from that that we are not God, and he doesn't need us, and life will go on, and we'll be all right. So he gives him rest. Second, he feeds him. He addresses that critical, exhausted need. Let's eat. You need to eat something. And so he feeds him. It's not a seven-course meal, but it's a good one. It's a hot stone cake with some water. Not a bad deal, especially for free, served up by an angel. Can't beat that. And then he was touched by an angel twice. See that? And that's, that's a personal, this is God's, you know, you know, angels are ministering spirits for us, right? You know that the angels are given for that. I'm not talking about fallen angels, I'm talking about God's elect angels that he has chosen for to serve us as his people. I think in heaven we will be amazed at the angelic ministry we know nothing about, right? We're going to find out so much stuff that God used, how, how God sent angels to care for us in various ways, to minister to us. This is what Hebrews talks about, that angels are ministering spirits to serve us. And this is what Elijah is experiencing here in a very physical, tangible way that we don't often experience or never experience at this point in redemptive history. But nevertheless, here an angel is sent to literally touch Elijah and speak kind words to him that are instructive. He tells him to arise and eat, and then he he eats, and then he touches him a second time in verse 7, and he says, arise and eat again. And he's nursing him back to health. He's ministering to him. He's caring for him. And then God speaks personally to him, not just the angel speaking to him, but God speaking personally to him. In verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, The Lord, now, what are you doing here, Elijah? So, notice, I want you to notice something that God is ministering to his discouraged servant who is, feels abandoned, but he is not abandoned. God is giving him rest, he's feeding him, he's touching him, he's speaking to him personally and doing so all without a word of condemnation. The tenderness of our God and the tenderness of this gesture makes clear that God loves us. Brothers and sisters, please know this. God loves you as much as when you're under the broom tree as when you're on the mountaintop. In fact, his tender heart is drawn out to you more when you're under the broom tree, when you're on the mountaintop. Elijah got God's most personal work for him when he was under the broom tree. Now, God, Elijah saw God work externally, powerfully, gloriously at Mount Carmel, but that wasn't as personal as what we're, he's experiencing right here. God loves you as much as when you want to die as when you're evangelizing the nations. God's love for us is not circumstantial. It's perpetual. God's grace is more than enough for your life when you have had enough of your life. Say that again. God's grace is more than enough for your life when you have had enough of your life. This is why Jerry Bridges in one of the best books I've ever read, The Discipline of Grace, this key phrase, this sentence, this has stuck in my mind for 20 years. He said, I think it's on the screen, our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace and your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. So good day, it's never too good that you're beyond needing God's grace. Bad day, It's never too bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Now, for your encouragement, things do not get better immediately for Elijah. You would think that'd be the way to end the story, right? I mean, great victory, struggle, redemption makes for a great movie, but not in real life. So Elijah goes 40 days to Mount Horeb according to God's command. And when he arrives there, he's as discouraged as ever. Now, what do we make of that? I mean, he got a visit from God. He's gotten ministered to personally by an angel, fed, given rest, equipped, strengthened, ministered to. Why are you so discouraged? Come on, Elijah. Come on. Get it together. Have you learned that sometimes discouragement, trouble, and depression are pretty hard to shake? They can be hard to shake. They can take months which is why as a body of Christ, we need to be patient with one another as we care for one another. Weep with those who weep, but that weeping can take a while. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning, but those sorrows can be pretty long in their night. That night can be pretty long. To rise up again, we need more than take two Bible verses and pray in the morning. Sometimes even the strongest Christian may need months to return to joy. And that's okay. That's okay. That's why we have each other. It's why we have the means of grace in the church. So, Elijah gets to the cave. Chapter 19, verse 10. And what happens? Look at verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek to take my life away. And then he says it again in verse 14. I'm very jealous for the... And he repeats it. You know what's going on here? Elijah's throwing a pity party. That's what's happening. He's not just restating the facts to God. God knows the facts. He's telling God so that because he's feeling sorry for himself. He's like, "I've been so jealous for you. I've labored for you. I've worked for you. The people, all those people out there, none of them stick with me. They've all forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets, and I even I only am left. Just me. Just me. And they now they're seeking to kill me." I mean, this is this is a this is a pity party. He's full of self-righteousness, self-importance, and self-pity. Notice what he's telling himself. I don't deserve this, God. I don't deserve this. I can't take it anymore. Nobody loves me. No one can solve my problems. I'm the only one. Nobody cares. And it's obvious by the repetition of verse 10 in verse 14 that Elijah's been telling himself this the entire trip. He's probably been rehearsing this in his mind over and over again as he's walking and he's taking this trip to the cave. I've been very jealous for the name of the Lord of hosts. They've all forsaken. And now they're seeking to take my life. What more does God want? We need to be careful of our self-talk. Because what you say to you all day long means a a whole lot more than what anybody else says to you. Because nobody talks to you about you more than you. So be careful. Be careful of what you're telling yourself when you are struggling in trouble. If you tell yourself things like this, no wonder you're discouraged. Trials do not contain. Listen to this because this is very important. Trials do not contain in themselves... The guarantee of your spiritual benefit. They are a test. Okay, listen. Trials sent by God do not contain in themselves spiritual benefit. They must be appropriated so that they are spiritually beneficial. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says that some trials embitter us. You find yourself bitter? It's because you have not responded appropriately to the trial that God has sent. It's not the trial's fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. So, our response to our trials is critical. It's crucial. What we tell ourselves is crucial. But what we really need to be telling ourselves is not what we tell ourselves, but what God tells us. Because God's word must rule Over that exhaustion, over that isolation, over that opposition, over that expectations, over that difficulty. But notice, God still does not abandon him. He doesn't walk away from his servant, even though his servant doesn't get it all that quickly. And God speaks to him, not in the wind, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but in the still small whisper we see in verse 12. Elijah had great expectations. He believed that the victory at Mount Carmel would be a prelude to a national revival for Israel. All good desires. But Elijah wanted God to do his will. And God refuses to do Elijah's will. And this is not God's plan. God was not in the wind. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. That's where Elijah thought God was in chapter 18. He isn't. What you do in response to God not giving you the thing you want or that you think will most glorify him may be the most important thing you do in your life. God wanted Elijah to love God for God's sake, and that's it. And then God puts Elijah, according to verses 15 through 18, on the shelf. Ministry's done. You're done. So that's how the story ends. Go get Elisha. Time to get a replacement. Now, that's not the end of the story, though. Elijah goes stumbling on, wounded to the death, in pain, every step of his way the rest of his life until the day God comes when God summons him to the Jordan. Let's go turn there. 2 Kings chapter 2. Here's the day of Elijah's death. 2 Kings chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 When they had crossed Elijah said to Elisha his replacement Ask what shall I do for you before I am taken from you And Elisha said please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me And he said you have asked a hard thing yet if you see me as I am being taken From you it shall be so for you, and if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of him. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Elijah, the man who was so dead of all his hopes and bereft of all his treasure that he didn't want to see the glory of God in the whirlwind, was ushered into glory by a whirlwind and horses and chariots of fire. God didn't want to give the whirlwind and fire only through Elijah, as though that were going to be his only ministry. He wanted to give the whirlwind and fire to Elijah. He didn't want to display his power and glory only through Elijah, but to Elijah. Elijah had wanted to see God in earthquake and whirlwind and fire, and when it came to bring his servant home, God did it in absolute glory, only it was exceedingly personal. Do not ever think that the Lord forgets his servants or what they do for him, the price they pay, and that his heart is not tender toward them. How many times has this happened in the history of the, the human race? Can you think of anybody else getting taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, chariots of fire? No. And this isn't even the last time we see Elijah in the Bible, is it? Let's look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Where do we see Elijah the last time he's in the Bible. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. This is Jesus with his three closest disciples. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. (laughs) and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter, those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. God has ruthlessly and emphatically pursued Elijah and he ripped from Elijah's heart in this life the one thing that Elijah most wanted, to see the glory of God. But Elijah got exactly what he wanted in a way better than he could have imagined it. See, when we know what God knows, he always answers his no with a better yes. The desire that Elijah had was not wrong. He had a pure, holy, honorable desire. See God glorified. See God exalted. But God was more concerned with bringing Elijah alongside that exaltation so that he could see it for himself in ways he never could have imagined back then as if God says I'm enough for you Elijah I'm the only treasure worth having and I'm the only treasure that can't be taken away from you when you have had enough I will be enough believe it I will be enough all Elijah wanted was to see God's glory on the mountain and oh did he ever see it oh did he ever see it he saw it in the face of his savior the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ there are two things and I'm going to say this in closing there are two things to learn in our disappointments we can think, if I'm faithful to God, trusting his grace, empowered by his spirit, I will not have crushing darkness as part of my experience. And then it comes. What's happening to me, O oh God, we say. But if we study our discouragements, we'll see what we love and what we really believe and where we really rest and what our real treasure is. And that's a gift. It won't always be pretty to see that. We can love what we want God to do more than we love God. And that was Elijah's problem. God's not going to have it that way. God is more concerned with giving us himself than he is concerned with giving us everything we want, even the good things we desire for his glory. Even the prayers that are saturated in Jesus' name that he says no to. And that's a good thing, because there's nothing in this world that cannot be taken away from us. But no one can take God away from us. And God is the one who ensures that that will happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meditate this morning and think together in your word on the life of your servant Elijah and the ways in which you dealt with him in many ways we see ourselves in his biography we see our legitimate desires to see you glorified in our families with our children with our spouses in our church in our workplaces in our in our lives we want to see you honored but then we also see ourselves succumbing to trouble and difficulty and discour- discouragement and challenges and Yet you teach us here that in those moments we are not forsaken. We are not abandoned. That if we knew everything that you knew, we would ask for exactly what you give. And Elijah would say to us, if he could speak again this morning, he would say, amen to everything you did. And so we will say one day as well, we will say, amen, God, amen. Thank you for doing it as you did it. In the meantime, help us to trust your heart when we can't trace your hand. When we have no idea what's going on around us, help us to flee to you. Help us to run to you. You're a very present help in time of trouble. And we rise and sing to you in full confidence of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.